Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Let's tag our, our original scripture. This is Acts chapter 4. Verse 29 and 30, this is, is the, 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 the initial church in Jerusalem. The day of Pentecost, they brought in a lot of, of people, primarily Jews. And, but they're running up against opposition now. The Sanhedrin, they, Peter and John healed the man that was lame. They brought him in, threatened them, said, you're not going to do this. Don't ever preach in the name of Jesus ever again. If you do, there are going to be consequences. And the result was they went back to their church, and this was the church's response to those threats. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. When we start feeling pressure from the enemy, from, from whatever source, we need to pray, God, I've touched a nerve, now give me boldness. We, we need to be, in, in, and I'm, I'm, not a, I'm an amateur historian, but I doubt that this, that, that, and I, one of my heroes was, was George Patton. Probably not one of the, a guy you would really want to hang around with a lot. He was coarse, he was crude, but I'm telling you what, if you had to, a battle to fight, you want a Patton. You want somebody that's going to take the fight to the enemy. His, his whole philosophy was... If, if I'm backing up, I'm going the wrong way. Now, there are times when you need to retreat, you need to pull back, you need to rest, you need to, you know, rearm. Billy Graham famously said, you know, when you sign a truce in a war, that's, that's a time when both sides separate and you rearm for the next conflict. Because there's always going to be conflict. Well, there are times when we need to pull back and, and retreat. I remember the church went through this thing, probably started in the late 80s or 90s, where we never have retreats anymore. We're going to have advances. Well, if you never retreat, you, you, you're going to wear yourself out. There are times when you just need, that's the Sabbath rest. You just need to pull aside, recharge your batteries, get, get back charged up with God, and then go back out and get at it. That's their attitude. God, give us more boldness. How am I going to get boldness? Verse 30, by stretching out your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That needs to be our prayer. God, give us boldness so that we can preach, and then we expect you to show up. It's, this is Mark 16 in action. Mark 16 was the Great Commission. This is where we finished up last week. Let's look at Mark 16, start with verse 15. This is Jesus. He said, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. It's, it's, it's having faith in that message. The gospel is basically, when you boil it down, Jesus is Lord over the universe. He has conquered death. He's conquered hell. He's conquered all the power of the enemy. He rose, and he's seated in heaven, and if you will accept what he's offering you, this salvation, he will seat you in heaven with him. And you are, death has no sting, death has no pain. If you, if you live long enough, you will die, unless Jesus comes back before you die. But death holds no fear. 
for us. That's the good news. But this is a conditional promise. He says, if you believe and is baptized. I, I, I've heard a lot of arguments. Is that water baptism? Is that spirit baptism? Is that being baptized into the body of Christ? I think personally it's being baptized into the body of Christ. Not to, to belittle water baptism, you ought to follow Jesus in, in being baptized in water. It's a signification. I died with Christ, I've risen to new life. It, it's something we ought to do. But the key is, if I don't believe, I will be condemned. It doesn't say, if I believe and am baptized, I'll be saved. If I don't believe and do, am not baptized, I'll be condemned. Faith is the key. That's where we are. We need, this is a conditional promise. Jesus has done everything for your salvation he's ever going to do. You have a choice. Believe it, not believe it. If you believe it, you're in the family. If you don't believe it, you reject it, you're out of the family. There, are, there is no in-between. This is, this is not one, well, I'm just going to kind of guard my powder here for a while and wait and see how this thing plays out. No, it's already played out. It's done. It's a done work. It's a finished work. And we need to decide, am I going... With Jesus, or am I going with Satan? Because it is that clear. And if you, if you choose right, then you go with God. And these, verse 17 is for those that have believed. It says, these signs. The, the, the Greek word there, it's all, it's a lot of translations, it's translated miracles. And a lot of times, it, is, um, uh, it does manifest itself as physical miracles. But what it means, the essence of this, when it says these signs will follow those who believe, it's, it's a better translation of that is these markers, these traits. You will know them by their fruit. You will, these signs will accompany people that are believing Jesus. These are the markers that, that ought to be in our life. And he goes on and he says, In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up servants, serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. If you want to sum all of that up, basically he said, If you are a believer, you ought to have supernatural things following you. I ought to be active in your life in all of these ways. And you can, you can get very specific with them, uh, or you can, can get very general with them. In my name, they'll cast out demons. You need to operate in authority over the power of the enemy. If you're a believer, you can't stay oppressed and under it all the time. It's just not part of being a believer. Now, if you're a... a um, a perpetual baby Christian because you've never been taught or because you refuse to learn. If I forget where it is now, it says, My people perish for a lack of knowledge. Nobody ever quotes the next verse. Because they have rejected knowledge. It's usually not just the plain ignorance. It's because someone presented something and your mind couldn't figure it out and you said, No, I don't think so. I reject that. You walk away from it. God will bring light, but if you don't push into that light, it'll leave. And you will stay in ignorance. You can stay a perpetual baby if you want to. You stay in, I'll be honest with you, it's a serious business what church you go to and what pastor you have. There are churches that I would never recommend 
to anybody. Because you're either going to go backwards in your Christian walk or you're going to go forwards or you're just going to be filled with pablum. And basically, I'm, I'm, think, I'm not thinking of evangelical churches. I'm talking like the Unitarian church. Where it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what you do. We're all going to be saved in the, in, in the end. Well, that'll get you a one-way ticket to hell if you stick with that philosophy and that theology too long. You need to avoid this stuff. But it says you will have cast out demons. You're going to walk in authority over the power of the enemy. You're going to speak with new tongues. It's going to change. I realize that's talking about a spiritual language, what Paul describes in um, <coughs> Corinthians chapter 14. But it also just means you're going to talk different than the world talks. You're going to communicate differently. You're not going to sound like the world. Paul rebuked the Corinthian church. He said, you're behaving like mere men. Yeah, I got a standard that's higher for you. Why are you acting like the world? If we're acting like the world and we sound like the world, then there's a problem. He says, in, in, um, they will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. Boy, that is one that's been abused. And my family comes from eastern Kentucky, honey, and I'm telling you, it really, I, I, I've gone to a few services in, in some old country churches and I always had the same philosophy. If the box of snakes comes out, if there ain't a door, I'll make a door. Because <laughs> I'm vacating. But I should not walk in fear of, of anything. When it says you will take up serpents, this is more of metaphorically speaking, not you need to go find copperheads and rattlesnakes and handle them to prove that you have power over them. No, it's saying quit walking in fear of the enemy and quit walking in fear of everything out in the world. I'm amazed today that, you know, every once in a while you'll see, if you're on Facebook, you'll see these, these lists of, it, it's a wonder that I'm alive. I'm in the generation I never had a helmet. I mean, we played football. I, I was in a school that was never big enough to have a football team. We had 101 students in the entire high school when I was a senior. You're not, you're not even going to man a seven-man team with that small a school. So we played Sandlot football. I never had a football helmet in my life. I've gotten my bell rung so hard. I know some of you are thinking, well, that explains a lot right there. Now I understand. But, but I, 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 I was with someone one time, and their son came out of the garage on a, on a um, big wheel. If you've ever known what a big wheel is, the, the seat sits about an inch off the, off the ground. And he had his helmet on. And I'm thinking, what are you teaching this child? Now, you don't need to be foolish. But at the same time, if you're riding a big wheel, it's almost impossible to turn that thing over. Quit walking in fear. People walk in fear of food. Oh, I can't eat that. That's, that'll, Lord have mercy. It's a wonder that, that ancient people lived at all. Because they didn't all, you know, they were just happy to have anything fill their bellies. Yet we, we have to be very selective. And there are people, there are Christians. I had one because I, I stay, you know, other than like this time around the holidays where I get, I go back and get hooked on my carbs for a while. But I stay on a low-carb diet. And I had a church member one time told me, I'm really praying that you'll get off of that, that uh, poisonous red meat. And I thought... I think there's a scripture in the New Testament that talks about forbidding to eat. 
This is one of the signs of the last days. Don't eat this. Don't eat that. I, we've got entire Christian church movements that are going back to the dietary laws of the Jews. And they're saying, well, it's healthier. No, Paul says just accept whatever you have, pray over it, bless it, and go in faith. For one thing, you don't know what's in your food anyway. Well, I only eat organic. The, the chemicals that are in on the regular fields, they're in organic foods too. You can't get away from all of the man-made chemicals that are in our environment. They're out there. And no matter what you eat, you're going to get them. So you better bless it. And when you go to a restaurant, you especially need to bless it because you don't know where that food came from. Oh, my. But he says, if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. What he is saying is these people, these believers are walking in the supernatural. They're expecting God to do things. And he said, if you, they will lay hands on a sick and they will recover. They're taking chances. And then verse 19, it says, So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So verse 20, Jesus is no longer on the planet. He's now seated in heaven. But notice verse 20. Verse 20 and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. How is the Lord working with them when he's already ascended into heaven? It, it, it's, it's amazing here. The, the Greek word there for working is, is, is a compound word. It's called synergeo. And that's a horrible pronunciation, but it'll have to do. Um, it's, it's a compound of, of sin, S-Y-N, not S-I-N. And it's where we, we, we get the, the term symphony. You take a whole bunch of instruments and you join them together. And I, I remember in, in college, I took a music appreciation course, and I thought, I just need an easy A. It's an elective. I don't, my brain is, is really being taxed. I was in the middle of my organic chemistry phase, and I needed something that was just easy. But I'm telling you, one of the requirements, I, I went to school down near Louisville, and one of the requirements was the Louisville Orchestra on Sunday afternoons had a free concert for anybody. It was just one of their ways of practicing before they started their season. And I just started going. I went once because it was required. And I'm telling you, I lived there until they quit, until they started charging, because I was a college student. I couldn't pay a ticket. But it, it opened my, my world to a whole different world of music. When you get that many instruments and they all work together, you get a sound that you cannot get from any one of those instruments. A symphony blends, and the combination is greater than the, than the sum of the parts. This is what, when the Lord works with us, He joins with us. That's what that sin means. He works, and the ergon means to work. But it means that we're not out there working alone. He is joined with our work, and we do our part, and then He will do His part if you're believing Him to show up. We need to approach life. We need to approach everything we do. We go out and preach. As St. Francis said, you ought to preach the, the gospel everywhere you go, even if you have to use words. Our lives ought to tell a story. And, and if they do, God will work with us. He will join in. And things that you think, th that was just, I, I, I just said something, it, it was a throwaway word. 
was just stammering around, and yet God can use that to penetrate someone's heart, and you don't even know how in the world they penetrated it. I don't know, but God does, and he, he comes and he joins with us, and, and by doing that, he confirms the word by these supernatural events. And keep in mind, when I say supernatural, you need to be careful that you don't miss the supernatural by always looking for the spectacular. Because most supernatural events that you see, they don't look especially important. They don't, it's not like bells go off and fireworks happen. God works supernaturally in ordinary events. And you just, you, you think, that, was that God? It was too easy. Yeah, if it was something you couldn't do. But then I, I, want to, I want to carry this out a little bit. I want us to go to the book of Revelation. This is, is Jesus' letter to the um, church at Philadelphia. The church at Philadelphia was, uh, it was only, I say only, it was only a couple of hundred years old. It, it had been founded right on the border of, of what was then Greek territory. And it was founded as a missionary city. Not missionary in the sense of taking the Christian um, or the Jewish even gospel, because this is two. This is like 150 B.C. But it was it was founded as a missionary city to take the Greek culture into Lydia and Sardis and a few some other cities that were off in this other little territory. They were so successful in importing Greek culture that in the church or the, the city of Lydia, by the time Paul comes, they, they've lost their native language. They, no one knows how to speak native Lydian anymore because they all speak Greek now. And then God founded this church at, at this city of Philadelphia and you, you can read, and, and it's, uh, it, it's another much-abused scripture sometimes. Paul says that I become all things to all men. And a lot of people will use that verse to say, well, sometimes I need to go to the bar and I need to go drinking with these guys so I can witness to them. That's not what that's meaning. You don't become all things to all men by joining with natural men in their, in their sinful behavior. What he's saying when he says, I become all things to all men, uh, probably the best example is in the book of Acts when he went to the city of Ephesus and Paul's in the, in the square and there are all kinds of idols around there. And he says, I see that you have this one idol to the unknown God because they were pagans and they had multiple gods and lest they leave one out, because you don't want to anger the gods, because the gods, you, you know, they like to mess with people. They're, they're like, you know, kids with a magnifying glass at an anthill. They like to see if, how, much, how much fun we can have. Let's heat them up and see what they do. That's what the ancient gods did. They played around with people. They would throw a thunderbolt down just to scare people. The ancient gods were, were, were terrors. So lest they offend a god... The Ephesians put this statue to the unknown God, just in case we miss somebody. We're covering our bases. Well, Paul came in and said, I know this unknown God. He became, or he, he brought himself into their culture and approached them through something that they already had. 
And he said, your unknown God, his name is Jesus. <clears throat> and then he preached the true gospel. But he did it through an avenue that, that they already had opened. This is what Philadelphia is doing. We're going to see as we read on down here, there's a point where, where God says, I have opened a door that no man can shut. Well, what's that mean? That means that they have opportunities to go out because the city was founded with the whole idea of your whole task in life is to take the, the Greek culture and spread it out into these lands over here. Well, we're going to come in now and we're going to use that same emphasis because you're already used to doing this, but we're going to take the message of the gospel now. We're going to take the message of, of Jesus and spread it out through here. God used what these people were already doing to further the kingdom. And that's one of the things that we need to do. We need to find where, where is this person's interest? What, what really floats their boat? What really motivates them? And then find some way to use that to introduce the gospel to them. <clears throat> Let's look at, at Revelation 3. We'll start at verse 7. And I'm just going to read verse 7, and then we're going to get into um, some detail, and I'm not even going to come close to finishing this today, because I'll be honest with you, you the, the le every, each one of these letters to the seven churches, you could preach for months on each letter. There's just, this is, there's a lot of theology condensed in here. But in verse 7 it says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These sayings, says, he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the keys of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Let's just start right there. That first little phrase there, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, I write. <clears throat> That's blind to most of us. One of the things you see with, with translating from the original Greek to whatever version, whether it's a Spanish Bible, English Bible, or whatever. Translations are difficult. Because there are some things that, I, and I, I, wish, I wish I could remember it now, but Gina, being a Spanish teacher, there is this little uh, saying, Lima Nidas, Thama Nida, or something. It, it, it's, it's, it's very rhythmic. It's kind of like our after a while crocodile. Well, you, you translate after a while crocodile, to another language, it makes no sense at all. That little rhythmic thing that she says in Spanish, when you look at the English translation, it's like, what? It just doesn't make sense. Well, we have that problem sometimes in every translation. And, but one of the real areas that it's hard to translate, if it's hard to translate, you will see it, because they just don't translate it. And this is one of those areas with the word angelos. Angelos is not translated anywhere in the New Testament. Pretty much. There are a few exceptions to that. They just made a new English word. They took angelos, the Greek word angelos, and made the, Greek, or the English word angel. And for the most part, when we read that, that, that word angel, we think of heavenly creatures, God's angels, or the third of the angels that fell, the fallen angels. But we think of angelic creatures, not human beings. The word angelos literally means a messenger. So you have to really read that. The, the, the problem was the translators didn't want to take a stand. 
<laughs> like most people. It's like, this is controversial. I'm just staying in the middle, not going down this road, not going to say, well, I'm not going to translate it one way or the other. Let's just transliterate it. It's angels. You figure out what it means. That's what they did here. So if you back up to Revelation chapter 1, this is when John first, he was on the Isle of Patmos, and he found himself on the Lord's Day, which he wasn't at church. He was in, in a, a prison. Patmos was a prison, and they mined. And, and they were, uh, the Patmos was kind of like the Nazi concentration camps. Part of the goal there was to work people to death. And they really wanted to work John to death because they tried to kill him a dozen different ways and he, wouldn't, he just refused to die. So it's like, well, we'll just put him out here. He's an old man. We'll work him to death. Well, he's in the mine doing whatever he's doing. And suddenly he finds he's in heaven. He says, on the Lord's day, I found myself having this vision. And he heard a voice. In Revelation 1, we're going to look at verse 12. He heard this voice, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. He, he was having this vision, and he heard a voice, and he turned, and he sees these seven lampstands. Now, quite literally, that the, the Greek word there for lampstand means like a candle um, abra, where you, you have a straight-up thing, with a little hole and you stick a candle in it. Metaphorically, probably a better view of that it would be like a lantern with glass sides and you have a candle inside of it. Because what he's going to do is he's going to show how God illuminates, how God brings light to his church. And I've heard this illustration for years that we're like the moon and God is like the sun and we just reflect the light. Well, we do, we are not the source of light. God is the source of light and illumination. But we don't just reflect His light. His light is on the inside of us because we have the Holy Spirit of God on the inside of us. So a better picture of, of what we are like and how we should shine the light into our world is that we are a lantern. Remember, Jesus said, don't put your, your lamp under a basket. He said, let it shine. We have in the middle of us that candle. Proverbs says that, that um, the Spirit of God is the, or the Spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. The Lord will illuminate our spirit because His Spirit's joined with our spirit in our innermost being. And if we will walk in obedience and walk in the Word, it will start to shine out. When, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, it wasn't that God's glory came down on him, it's that his glory, the glory of the second person of the Godhead, sprang out of him. Well, we have that same glory. Now, we're not going to have it to the extent Jesus did, because if, if, we, if he let that much glory come out of us, well, our bodies would be a little pile of cinders, because we still have the nature of the flesh within us. Jesus didn't have that. So he could manifest that glory and, and glow in his majesty. There's a day coming when we're going to have a new body and we can do that. But these seven golden lampstands, um, if you want to think of it, a, a comparison, think of the, the, the wise and the foolish version, virgins, that story out of um, um, 
Oh, I lost it now. Matthew 25. It says that there were seven wise and seven foolish virgins. What's the difference? All 14 of them had lamps, but seven of them didn't keep enough oil in their lamp. The source of the light was the oil. Oil is a type of the Holy Spirit. So they didn't have the presence of God. The foolish virgins didn't have the presence of God. That's why when, when things went on, Jesus looked at me and said, I never knew you. It wasn't, it wasn't seven Christians who simply didn't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if, because in that case, God would have known them. In fact, he probably might have said, you know, guys, you really ought to let my Holy Spirit in you and let him operate through you because you'd have things underhand a little better. But if he says, I never knew you, they don't have the Spirit of God at all, means they're not Christians. But it's the same, that's the picture. It, it's, it's a lamp or a, a something that has light coming out of it because you have the presence of God there. But the emphasis on both of these is not the structure of the lamp. The emphasis is the source of the light. That's where the emphasis is. Where is this light coming from? Well, and in, in, if you go down to verse um, 20... In Revelation 1, John gives you, he explains a little bit of this mystery. He says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels, or the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So Jesus is saying, here in this, I'm, I'm going to give you these letters to these seven churches. And there are a lot of ways you can look at those letters. Some people have looked at that as, as a progression of the different phases of the church coming right up to the end. Some people have looked at it. I personally think it's probably more like these are seven types of churches, seven stages that churches will or can get to or be in. Because mainly Jesus is dealing with problems. And, you know, let's face it, I've said it before, if, if, you, if you don't like the church you're in and you're looking for the perfect church, when you find it, for God's sake, stay away from it. Because if you go join it, it ain't going to be perfect anymore. And I know that sounds harsh, but let's face it, none of us is perfect. None of us have the full revelation. And I love Kenneth Copeland. Somebody asked him years ago, he said, do you preach the full gospel? He said, I don't know the full gospel. And it's the truth. None of us have a corner on revelation. We preach what we know, we share what we know, and we hope that God makes up the difference. But, but he says here, there are seven churches here, and I've got seven stars in my hand. These stars are the angels of the seven churches. And this is one, this is where you get into some controversy. And I'll show you how I interpret that based on Malachi Chapter 2, verse 7, Malachi says, The lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. He's talking about priests, which we are all priests unto God. We're kings and priests. John says that in Revelation. If you are a Christian, you stand in the office of a priest, and you stand in, in the office of a king. You are royal. 
And you have the, the obligation to bring the message of God to people. So these messengers, you can, you can look at it from two senses. In the church, we are all God's priests and we are all God's messengers. But in this example, Jesus is saying, I have seven stars for seven churches. So I, and I've heard people say, well, that means every church has its own personal angel. That may be true. I don't know, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about here seven pastors in seven churches. Because the primary light, the primary message that you get in any church is from the role of the pastor. Paul, or Paul said that in Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12, talking about Jesus. He said, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. He gives a five-fold ministry. Prophets, apostles, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. The one that later on in, in Ephesians he, or in Corinthians, he gives that similar list, but he doesn't mention pastors or teachers. He mentions works, and he goes through, through different things that you see functions of a church. Pastors and teachers primarily minister in churches, and they are the primary source of light. That's why you come to services, so that God can give me a message that I can share with you, and then you can take and study that and, and, and use that to, to bring enlightenment to you. And the great part is, I had people, I've, I've preached messages before, and I have people come up and they say, wow, that, what you said there revolutionized something for me. And I say, really, what was it? And they'll tell me what, what they heard me say, and I'm thinking, I never said that. And I've, there's been times when I've gone back and listened to the message, and I didn't say it. But that's what they heard. God can sometimes do things like that. You'll get, you'll get something out of a message that I never intended. But between my lips and your ears, God can do a miracle. But, but what he's saying here is we, we have this, this, um, this ministry to these seven types of churches, and it starts with... The, the pastor bringing God's word, and then that word, as you get, as the members get that revelation, they take that revelation because you can take a single uh, lantern with a single candle, you can get some light off of it. But you take a dozen, or 30, or 40, or 50, or in the case of some of the churches around now, 10,000, 30,000 lanterns all together, there's a lot of light that shines out of that. <clears throat> the point is, what are you doing with the light? And are, are you taking it and building up the, 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 the body of Christ so that the body of Christ is, is informed and built up so that the body can go out and, as Paul said there in Ephesians 4, the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. One of the biggest problems that, that we have had, and it started long before the 20th century, but it was perfected, I think, during the 20th century, was we brought in this idea of the professional clergy. And the function of it, whether they admitted it or not, the function was, look, I, I really don't have time to study the Bible. I don't want to have to go do all this. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to devote myself to business to earn in money, and then I'm going to give the church money, 
And you, as the pastor, as the, the, the clergy, you go do the spiritual work for me. You do my praying. You go lay hands on the sick. You go minister to people. And all I'm going to do is I, I'm just going to live my ordinary life, and I'm going to fund everything that you need to do. And if we do need to do more, then we'll just believe for more money so we can do more. We'll hire more staff. No, it's got it backwards. The work is supposed to be done by the congregation, not the pastor or not the, 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 the other staff members on church. Now, when you come down to it, that comes down, well, what is the work of the ministry? Evangelization, building people up, preaching the word, sharing what God's doing in your life. And part of the problem is sometimes we don't have a lot to share because God's not doing a lot in our life because we're not taking the challenge of the Word and putting our faith with the Word. But I'm, let me close with this, and I'll, I'll, we'll pick this up next week. Back in Revelation 3, he says to, to in that very first part of verse 7, to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, these things says, so there's two parts to this verse. There's God, there's Jesus speaking to the pastor. This is what I want you to minister to your church so they can take it out and do this. But he says, I want you to know who's talking to you. He says, these things says, he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. He starts with, I want you to know who's delivering this message. It's God. I'm holy. That literally means I'm set apart. I'm not like these other gods. You can, you can get some, some um, stuff from political leaders. They have some authority. If, if, and, and when I say political leaders, I'm talking about all authorities, not just the professional politicians. And, and, and the proof of that is you go out here on the roads and, and somebody in that white car pulls up and you see a light in your rearview mirror, you better obey what they say. If they say pull over, pull over. They say get out of the car, get out of the car. If they want your license, don't argue with them. Don't, you know, well, I'm a sovereign citizen. Who cares? The woman or the man's wearing a gun. Do what they say. This, this is what, it, it's, it's, this is God saying, I am set apart. I don't have to carry a badge and a gun. I'm God, and there are no other gods like me. And when I talk, you better listen. If you're old enough, you'll remember those old TV commercials where they're having a big party and everybody's talking and it's real loud. And then somebody says, well, E.F. Hutton says, everybody got quiet. Why? Because I've got to find out how to invest all this extra money that I've got. That was why I always laughed at that commercial. It's like, they don't, I called and asked them if I could bring my $12 and open an account, and they just said no. I'm like, okay. But it, it, it's God. He says, I'm separate. He said, I, it's, it's he who is true. This is a, this is a unique Greek word. There, there, there is a sense of true versus false, a right answer versus a wrong answer. That's not what this word means. This word, true, means a genuine article versus a counterfeit. He said, I am the genuine article here. I'm not some cheap knockoff. You can, you can make coins that look like they're gold, have about the same heft, 
How do you know the difference between a gold coin and a brass coin? Because brass looks just like gold. You, you very gently put it in your mouth and you bite down on it. If your tooth breaks, it's brass. If your tooth dents it, it's gold. Brass is a cheap imitation of gold. God says, I'm true. I am the genuine article. There is none like me. I'm not like the other gods out here that people tell you. This will set you free. If you just let go and do whatever you want to, you're okay, I'm okay. No, you're not okay. I'm not okay. I need God. I need that genuine article in my life. And then he says, I am he who has the key of David. We went back and looked uh, several weeks ago at Isaiah 22, where we had Shebna, who was the, um, he was the steward of the house of Hezekiah, but he got the big head. I got the keys. I let the people in. I, I, I keep the people out. You don't get in to see the king unless I okay it. I'm the guardian of the door, and I'm special, buddy. I'm like that Marine standing outside the White House. You're going to come through to see the president. You're going to have to come through me. Well, if you start thinking you're something, you're going to figure out real quick. God will let you know you're not really that big a deal. You may have two stripes on your shoulder, but that doesn't make you very important when you're hanging around all these big shots. Shebna thought he was a big shot, and he decided to build his tomb with the tombs of the kings. And the next thing you know, Hezekiah said, um, Shebna, there's the road. Hit it. And he exalted Elikam. And Elikam became the doorkeeper. He had the keys. He decided who comes in and who goes out. God is ultimately saying, I am he who opens and no one shuts, and I shut and no one opens. What is implied there but not said directly is, as we operate in his stead, as we operate under his authority, he will say, open this door and nobody's going to close it because I told you. It's like the old story, I've, I've said it many times. When my kids were little, my son would go off to the playground and you couldn't pry that boy back home at all. He just would, you know, until starvation hit, he's not coming back. So I would send Tiffany down, tell him to come home, but make sure you tell him Dad said come home. Because she'd go down there because she was a smart aleck little girl. Ryan, you need to come home. And Ryan would say, you're not the boss of me. I'm going to stay and play. And then she'd say, Dad said. Just to stick the little jab in. Now you have to do what I say whether you like it or not. Well, when God tells you to unlock a door... Unlock it. Nobody's going to be able to close it. When he says, shut this door, then you shut it. You have the keys. Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. The difference is we don't just get to operate those keys how we want to. We have to be led by him. And when he says, do this, we take our authority, which is what keys represent, and we lock some things, we open some things, we, our voice, our mouth, because we're his voice, we're his mouthpiece. And as long as we're following him, he backs us up. And then, to, to just close, verse 11, or excuse me, verse 8. says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. 
I love that, and we're, we'll, we'll pick it up next week on that. He said, you, you're, you only have a little bit of strength. You're not one of my more powerful churches. You're not one of my powerhouses. This is not, you know, a 30,000-person megachurch. You're just a few people, and you only have a little strength, but you've kept my word, and you've not denied my name. And because of that, I'm opening a door that you're going to be able to walk through. See, the point is not how many you have. It's what are you walking in? You, well, I don't have a lot of influence. I don't have presidents calling me. I don't have corporations wanting my advice. Nobody's calling saying, what do you think, Pastor? Nobody's calling you saying, what do you think? But God knows what you are. And if you've kept his word and, and, and not denied his name, that is not just rejecting Jesus, that means I'm staying connected with him, then you can open doors and close doors. You can have influence in your life and you can have influence in other people's lives. We have to understand it, it's not how big you are, it's how big your God is. And you by yourself, if God tells you to do something, you can move, you can turn the, 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 uh, the earth upside down if God tells you to do it and you operate in his authority. Why? Because you're his child. Because you are his mouthpiece. You have the Holy Spirit in you. And the Holy Spirit, with just a few words, Jesus spoke out words and the Holy Spirit created the entire universe. It came into existence. When he says, you go say for me this, things happen. But you just have to keep his word and you have to hold close to his name. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.